Let's open in prayer this morning, folks. Lord, we just thank you for the morning. Thank you for a beautiful day. It's uh, wonderful how times change, seasons move. And yet, Lord, you set that as a witness to your faithfulness. And we're told that your promises and your just your love and your care for us will never cease as long as these things exist. Help us to find comfort in that, Lord, knowing that the day will come that you will come back for us. Until that day, Lord, help us to examine our hearts, help us to stand right before you, help us to stay dependent on your word, help us to stay in fellowship with your people, and help us to stay just with a vision towards the mission you have for us to reach all men with the gospel. We thank you for the witness of this church over the, the many years it's been here. I thank you for the faithfulness of the, the leaders and the, the teachers and elders. And Father, in that, I just ask you to be with Dave this morning as he opens your word. Help us to be prepared in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been uh, studying in Second Samuel. Who remembers what we studied last week? Anybody? Anybody remember where we were last week? Second Samuel. Second Samuel. <laughs> well, we kind of gave you a little help there. <laughs> Second Samuel. Oh, you read ahead. Second Samuel chapter 7. Anybody remember what I said about 2 Samuel chapter 7 last week? No. It's one of the most important uh, important parts of the Bible in that it lays out um, what we call the Davidic Covenant. And it's a promise made to David, and it's a development of a concept of Messiah for the Jewish people and for us. So it's central to our understanding, our theology as Christians, our understanding of God and his purpose and his plan as he works it out in the world. So I'm just shocked that y'all forgot that. <laughs> but there is this phenomenon called seven-day memory, which is why we come back every seven days to get refreshed. <laughs> Seriously, no matter how how uh, how bad things were a week ago, seven days later you can have a completely new perspective. So this morning we want to get a completely new perspective. And y'all know that I usually start in a psalm. But I'm going to uh, try and frame a large picture for you this morning. <coughs> we're going to take a look at Second Samuel chapter eight. But I'd like this like you to see how it fits in a larger context, that it's more than just history that's disconnected from our lives, but it's actually really important to uh, how we live every day. Now, y'all have heard me talk about what happened to the, the Jewish nation, the Hebrew children, uh, after the time of David. We've been talking about the development of uh, the Hebrew nation from tribes, or 12 families, into uh, a unified uh, collection of tribes, you can kind of think of, of the states, to a consolidated territorial nation under David, 
and they're going to become an international uh, nation so that they're going to establish trade with other nations and become more of a, a world power and ultimately they're going to become an empire. Now, we know that as you're going through this social building phase, that when you get to the end, you get to that empire phase, it typically is very short-lived. We can look at some of the great empires in the world, and uh, we think of the Egyptian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the, the Greek the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, all of them have an impact, even on us today. And we see remnants of those empires, like, for example, in Egypt. Egypt is still uh, a country. And we see a lot of things happening in Egypt today that are related to, to history. And we understand that the Jewish nation at one point in time was an empire as well. And that followed this time in chapter 7, promised to David. But one of the things that happens if you look at history, God made a promise to David. And I'm going to read it to you. And then I'm going to take you on a little bit of a trip this morning. And we're going to end up in a psalm. So it's going to be a long introduction. Sorry. Um, if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse, uh, I'm going to start at verse 15, even though it's the middle of a sentence, well, I'll, I'll just read verse 16, it says, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, your throne shall be established forever, so this was a promise made to David, but it was also a promise made to God's people, and we're God's people, and we understand that this has uh, an implication for us, personally, that there were aspects of this covenant that were specific to Israel, but there are also aspects of, these, of this covenant that are more general and apply to us, and verse 16 is one of those general statements, your house and your kingdom, speaking of the house of David, his generations, his dynasty, and uh, his kingdom, the kingdom that would be established on earth, God's kingdom established on earth, shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Well, we're going to see what happens to David, and if you're interested, you can follow through the kings, and you'll find out what happens to the nation of Israel through the kings. But they get to a point where they completely forget about God. Surprise, surprise. And you read through the prophets, and a lot of the prophets are trying to help the people wake up. Wake up! Don't you remember where you came from? Don't you remember how you got here? Don't you remember your God? He remembers you. And so you read the prophetic voice to God's people, but they ignore it. And they get to a point uh, about 400 years later, so this covenant given in about 1000 B.C., uh, 400 years later, about 600 B.C., this is what the chronicler says, and this is in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 14 through 16. It says, all the officials of the, uh, let's see, all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their father, sent word to them again and again by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. 
But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. Now, anytime I read a statement like that in the Bible, it scares me. Until there was no remedy. God, we understand, and we've been reading, is faithful. And he's making eternal promises to us. And yet, when people disregard God, they get to a place of no remedy. So what do you think God did? What do you think God did? Well, if you know your history, what he did is something that the faithful Jews were absolutely astonished at. He brought uh, a really evil nation against them to take them captive, to conquer them, and to completely destroy them. So the Babylonians came in, and three times they sacked Jerusalem. The third time they sacked Jerusalem, they destroyed what was the Temple Mount. Now we've been reading about David and how David took this little spit of land here. This is the the Kidron Valley coming down and the Hebron Valley, or not Hebron, the Hinnom Valley comes down over here. They kind of meet down here in this corner down the lower part of the screen. This little spit of land, this is a model of what Jerusalem looked like in the first century in Jesus' time. This little spit of land is called the City of David. That was the area that David took from the Jebusites. There was a city named Jebus. And it became Jerusalem. And uh, today, Jerusalem is this area up here. And in Jesus' time, it stretched all the way over here to this mountain. They call it Mount Zion, the hill here. There's a, a valley separating the city of David from the larger population base, um, which would have been within the wall at that time. And uh, I guess we call it Mount Zion. And up here at the top of the hill, so David, sitting in his, his palace, looking uphill, would have seen what became the Temple Mount. And this is the temple as, uh, as it was in the first century. Now, that wasn't the original temple. That wasn't the one that was built um, by... Let's see if we can find a picture of the temple here. I'm going the wrong direction. I'm go backwards. We've got a good picture of the temple in here somewhere. Okay, here's a picture of the temple. This is the temple from the eastern wall. So this is the gate that comes down through the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives. You can see it's a big platform up here. and This is the actual temple. This was a temple that was built by Herod, who was a great builder. But there was one that was built by Solomon. And it followed this same form. And it was in this same place. And when the Babylonians came in, they completely destroyed this. They took it to the ground. And they completely destroyed the wall that was around Jerusalem. So we look at that that wall. Uh, this wall goes all the way around the city, all the way to the other side. They completely destroyed the wall. They completely destroyed the houses. They took, um, in three deportations where they would take prisoners, they would take the prisoners away naked in chains. And they were as ruthless as the Assyrians were before them who put fish hooks in the mouth of the slaves. Oh, dear. So they would lead them captive, keep them in line, right? And it wasn't uncommon that when 
um, people would conquer a nation that the slaves that they would take in order to keep their <coughs> slaves would gouge out their eyes oh. or gouge out one of their eyes. Oh. And you actually read that that happened to the king of, that was reigning in Jerusalem at that time, Zedekiah, actually had his eyes gouged out. Right? This is the people that God brought because there was no remedy. And he took a remnant <coughs> that were captives that went into captivity. And if you read Daniel, you read about this remnant. These were the ones that God spared. And from that remnant arose the nation again that would eventually inhabit this land in the time of Jesus. And that inhabits the land today. That was a remnant that came as a result of great tribulation that came upon the people. Now, when, when we look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we're going to look this morning at chapter 8, you see a time of great prosperity and victory, a time when the, the nation is growing and expanding and being prosperous and being secure and safe. And it wasn't just a few years later that all the things I just described happened. And it happened because... They ignored God's messenger again and again. But because he had his com uh, compassion on his people in his dwelling place, he preserved a remnant. They continually mocked the messengers, despised his words, scoffed his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people. I say this because I want to take you to Psalm 89. We've been talking about the Psalms uh, around this covenant, and this is a long one. And because it's a long one, I'll go ahead and read it this morning, unless somebody is a great reader and wants to read So I'm looking for hands to go up. Do I see any? Psalm 89. What you're going to read is you're going to read a history, all the way up to this time when they were taken into captivity in Babylon. Yeah, Karen. If you read it, it's a long psalm. Follow along your Bible as Karen reads. <coughs> I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you established your faithfulness in heaven itself. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. The heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness too, and the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. O Lord God Almighty, who is like you? You are mighty, O Lord, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. You crush Rahab like one of the slain. With your strong arm, you scatter your enemies. The heavens are yours, and yours are also the earth. You founded the world and all that is in it. You created the north and the south. Tabor and Haran sing for joy at your name. Your arm is a beautiful power. Your hand is strong and your right hand exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you and who walk in the light of the of the Lord. They rejoice in your name all day long. They exult in your righteousness. For you are their glory and strength, and by your favor you exalt our form. 
Indeed, our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. Once you spoke in a vision to your faithful people, you said, I have bestowed strength on a warrior. I have exalted a young man from among the people. I have found David my servant. With my sacred oil, I have anointed him. My hand will sustain him, and surely my arm will strengthen him. No enemy will subject him to tribute. No wicked man will oppress him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries. My faithful love will be with him, and through my name his horn will be exalted. I will set his hand over the sea, his right hand over the rivers. He will call out to me, You are my Father, my God, my Rock, my Savior. I will also appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne, as long as the heavens endure. If his sons forsake my law and do not follow my statutes, if they violate my decrees and fail to keep my commands, I will punish their sin with a rod, their iniquity with flogging. But I will not take away my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, and I will not lie to David, that his line will continue forever, his throne and endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. But you have rejected, you have spurned, you have been very angry with your anointed one. You have renounced him that we have his crown in the dust. You have broken through all his walls and reduced his strongholds to ruins. All who pass by have plundered him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes, you have made all his enemies rejoice. You have turned back the edge of his sword, and have not supported him in battle. You have put an end to his splendor, and cast his throne to the ground. You have, you have cut short the days of his youth, you have covered him with a mantle of shame. How long, O oh Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how fleeting is my life, for what futility you have created in all men. For what man can live and not see death, or save himself from the power of the grave? O Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, Lord, how your servant has been mocked, and how I bear in my heart the taunts of all the nations, the taunts with which your enemies have mocked, O Lord, with which they have mocked every step of your anointed one. Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen. 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 This is, uh, I love the way this starts out. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. That's what's recorded here. This was uh, Ethan, the Ezraite. So he uh, evidently was a faithful servant of the Lord. Uh, I off the top of my head, I can't remember the lineage of Ethan. So it must be way after David? Yes, this is at the time when they went into captivity. So he's he's remembering what God has promised to the people. This is important when you're at a place where everything is going sideways. Seriously. And the whole world around you is reflecting this heart of turning away from the Lord, scoffing at his prophets and his word. When you see that happening in the world, that's where Ethan was standing. He was standing in a place of destruction. And you even see that because he talks about the walls being broken down and uh, says, uh, you've cast uh, off and rejected, you've been full of wrath against your anointed, 
uh, spurned the covenant. He talks about uh, the wall being broken down. I, I can go through it. I mean, you read it in there. That's where he's standing. He's standing at a point where he's actually seen the result of people's uh, rejection of God. And he is one of the, the uh, captives that was taken. And he wants to encourage people around him. He says, you know, this is really a bad place. We're not supposed to be here. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. And from that place, he remembers who God is and what he's promised. And then he asks an honest question. He says, where are you now, God? Did you completely reject us? Did you forget this promise that you made? What's going to happen now? And that's why I think it's great that he starts with, he's going to sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. He's not going to allow what he sees going on in the world to um, cause him to lose confidence in what God has said. Because God told us the end from the beginning, what's going to happen. And that's what's going on in this three chapters of David that we've been looking at, or of Samuel, 2 Samuel 6, 7, and 8, is all about God establishing this future plan among humanity. It's not the end of that plan, but he's given us insight as to what the future looks like. So can we talk about that for a second? Sure. So in face of the facts <laughs> that the wall's broken down and people are being carried away, yep. Ethan goes back and remembers the promises. Yep. But it doesn't seem like the promises are really being fulfilled. Right? That's that's so what I'm, I'm trying to translate this for us today because I think there's something really important here. Yes. <laughs> so in spite of the facts that things aren't the way we would like it, or the way that we even think that God wants it, we need to claim His promise. I mean, help, help me yeah. figure this out. In, I, in, I, a, in a sense, I that's absolutely correct. <clears throat> we need to remember that God, in, when humanity fell, Take it all the way back to the very beginning. The very first couple, Adam and Eve, they were in perfect fellowship with God. They were operating as God intended, as he designed them. And we understand that in, as a Hebrew word called shalom. Operating according to God's design. When that is actually occurring on the earth, we experience it as peace, rest, wholeness. Um, there's an excitement and energy to it because God energizes his creation in a way that we can't even find words for it, right? And yet we respond to it. We respond to the beauty of it. Um, we respond in song to God. Okay, right? so when that isn't the fact. So when that moment. isn't the fact, it's not that way, and yet our heart yearns for that. Yeah. And the author of Ecclesiastes said that God has put eternity in our hearts, yet we can't grasp it. In other words, there's this, this uh, churning inside of us, because we know that it's supposed to be different. 
but something is out of place. It also seems to me that Ethan is writing this without the perspective of time. Because shortly thereafter, you know, mm -hmm. in geologic time, there was um, the, the Medes and the Persian, the king sends these people back, they rebuild the wall, they rebuild the So short-term consequences versus long-term consequences. Well, I think that Ethan was actually um, writing it in time in the sense that He's remembering the character of God. He's remembering the promise of God. He's remembering the initial fulfillment of that promise, the security that they had, the nation that was emerging. And then he is also reflecting on what, what, what had happened. But he's not discounting that God is faithful and that God is going to rebuild the wall. Yeah. He's going to rebuild the temple because he ends with with a statement. But it seems like, too, that he's got an awful good memory of what the covenant was, considering that there were a bunch of people that had completely forgotten who God was. Well, this one man remembered quite clearly. And that's what we're here to do. We're here to know the words of the covenant of God so that when all else has failed, that we are able to faithfully share that good news of God's covenant with those around us. If you read Ephesians chapter 6, it says, we don't wrestle, struggle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. Therefore, take the full armor of God to be able to withstand the wiles of the devil that should be able to stand in the evil day. And having done all, stand fast. That's what it says. Having done all, stand fast. And then it talks about what that armor is, of which part of it is a shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, the preparation of the gospel of peace. Right? It talks about how we are to be equipped because this has got to happen in the middle. What's happening in the world today has got to happen because God is in history redeeming humanity. And Ethan was one of those that were a remnant. He had a very difficult place in history. He had to watch the world go to pot around him. Jeremiah had to watch as the world went totally against God all around him. Daniel had to watch in captivity as the nations that were totally anti-God thrived and that he was trained to serve in that place. But he remembered the word of God. Daniel remembered the word of God. Ethan remembered the word of God. This morning, we want to remember the word of God. And that's why I wanted to frame this as we look at chapter 8 of 2 Samuel. Because what you're seeing in 2 Samuel is the very thing that we'll someday recite. As we look around us and we see the world falling apart... We need to remember this essential theology. And the essential theology is, if you look at chapter 6, it's about David uh, establishing the way that the rule of God among his people in this world will occur. That he takes uh, a place 
where God's people come to as the center of government. He establishes a government there. And then he brings God's presence into that place so that God and humanity can exist together. It's, he brings the throne of God to Jerusalem. He brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. So he's not only establishing a political uh, machine and a social construct that people are going to operate on on the earth, but he's also establishing the religious context, how they're going to relate to God. Very, very, very significant. God is center of everything that David is doing. The, the, the throne is moved into Jerusalem. The next thing that David wants to do is he wants to build a throne room for God. And God says what to David? He says, I don't need a throne room. I already have a throne room. Right? I am with you by choice. Don't you remember? And he gives him a little bit of a memory about how um, he has taken David from this place of being a shepherd to the leader of the people, and that that was his doing. You, know, you read this over and over and over again. This is all what God did for David. This is all what God did for his people. His people didn't do that for God, and David didn't do that for God, and he didn't do it for himself or his people. God did that for them and for him. And that's, we're going to read that same thing today when we look at chapter 8. So, he gets to the point where the throne is now with men. And then he says, now the king that sits on that throne will also be with men. That's what we see in chapter 7. That's why I start out with verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. We understand that this is a covenant because the word covenant is actually used in Psalm 89. So this is a type of contract between God and his people. Remember the, the four elements of covenant have to do with relationship. The relationship is defined. He's God. We're not. We're his people. He's not our people. Right? And that's a very important relationship to establish. A lot of us think we're in God's place. And that's something we've got to get over before we can go any further. <coughs> relationship is established. The promise is given. The promise, uh, in the case of, you know, I always equate this to like a mortgage. You write a promissory note. Right? Um, then the terms are defined of that covenant. And finally, the performance requirements are stated. Now, in, in a unilateral covenant, the performance requirements are all upon one party. In this case, upon God. He said, this is my promise. The terms are that my loving kindness shall not depart from him. So, God has said, this is what I'm going to do. And the terms are eternal. Right? This is how I'm going to fulfill that. And then the performance requirements are all upon one. They're not upon the many. So like in the Mosaic Covenant, we have performance requirements. In other words, God said, if you walk with me, you'll be with me. Not that he would ever be far from us, but that our proximity to him was somewhat dependent upon us. But in this case, it's dependent upon 
one who is a descendant of David, and that his throne shall be established forever. So you see that what's happening here is that the throne of God is set up, and then we're given a foreshadow of the one who will sit on that throne, the one who will be fully man and fully God. And we had uh, revealed that a little bit last week when we looked at Daniel 7.13. talks about the Son of Man, one like the Son of Man, coming in the clouds. And to him was given a dominion. I'll, I'll read it for you, just because I want you to understand and how that relates to the New Testament. So I'm telling you a larger picture this morning. I'm telling you more than just uh, what's happening in, as David sits there, we're looking at God's plan that's revealed throughout Scripture. And this is important to understand. You can't take one little piece of God's Scripture and say, I'm going to base my theology on this verse. It doesn't work that way. It's a whole. God's given us a whole revelation. We need the full counsel of this Scripture in order to understand what it is He's trying to tell us and who He is. Where are you? I'm in uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancients of days and was presented before him. So think about how the events of Jesus' incarnation came about. We're reading through this. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. We also went to Psalm 110 to get a picture of what that dominion and rule would look like. And that once the king is seated on the throne, he rules with an iron scepter. In other words, he establishes justice wherever he goes. He is the true king, the just king. And what he proclaims in his kingdom is not only right, but it's just. And justice is bringing things into compliance with the right. And so he's going to rule with an iron scepter. There will be no deviation from the right in his kingdom. That which he declares is good and true. And that's what Ethan said. God is good and true. We understand this about the character of God. The one who sits on that throne is good and true. And yet he's one like the Son of Man. So we understand that this is where heaven and earth come together. God has his throne room in heaven. But, and David wanted to build that throne room for God on earth. But God said, no, you, you have the throne. The king is coming. That's what chapter 7 is about. That's why we talk about it as messianic in its, in its context. It's about Messiah. It's about the king that would come. Now let me tell you what's going to happen when that king comes. When that king comes, we read in, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, it says, first he's going to be presented to the ancient of days. So in that presentation, you can think of that as Jesus' first advent. Right? He came. He was uh, the king from eternity past to eternity future, and yet he came to establish his kingdom on earth. What did John the Baptist say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What did Jesus say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact, in your very presence. 
He came to bring the kingdom of God on earth. And in that, he fulfilled his mission to redeem humanity. And then he was presented back before God. You read this in Hebrews. You read it in Daniel. And at that point, he's given the eternal dominion. So that means that from that point forward, he rules with an iron scepter. So that's why we talk about the second coming of Jesus being one which is not going to be fooling around. The wrath of God is going to come. But that wrath of God is not to exact punishment, but to redeem people. He cares about humanity. If he didn't, he would have just let it spin off. But he cares. So much so that he's involved. But when he rules with an iron scepter, this is what it looks like. Let's take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 8. Any questions? I mean, I just gave you a big chunk of theology. One little, you know, kind of like drinking from a fire hose. The thing that bothers me is the term rules with an iron block. Yep. That sounds like huge discipline. Is there going to be any leniency in there? Or? <laughs> well, okay. So, if I, care, if I care about life, and I see my child doing something that's going to lead to death, I'm going to be extreme in my correction to get it back into life. In fact, I'm going to be fiercely loving. You know, we call it tough love sometimes. Uh, in order to keep my child from entering into death. I think that that's what it means by an iron scepter. It isn't that there is no tolerance. It's that um, that which is right and true is established everywhere. And if you're outside of right and true, you're going to experience that in a very negative way. Is that helpful? Still sounds harsh. It, it does well, sound harsh. It talks what? about the sword that comes out of his mouth. Mm -hmm. You know, things like that. I mean, the second coming of Christ is not going to be the docile little guy that we have in the first place. No, and, and I've heard that uh, truth without compassion is cruelty. Yeah. Right? And what I would say is that the mercy of God and the justice of God are uh, so closely related that you can't unwind them. And, and we see that. We understand that, okay, in our world, if a cancer is invading the body, this is the example I usually use, is that a cancer is a systemic disease. So what it does is it attacks systems. Systems are, um, they're more than just a single cell or a single collection of cells or organ. Um, if you're, what happens in your liver affects the toenail, right? It does. And the reason why is because we're a system. So when a cancer invades and it's a systemic disease, you need to cut it out. Not only do you need to cut it out, but you're not careful in the sense of I'm only going to you know, get this cell and not that cell, because you get surrounding cells to make sure that that cancer doesn't invade any more of the system, any more of the body. And that's the way sin is. Sin is systemic. It corrupts totally. We talk about total depravity. It's not that you're as bad as you can possibly be, but within you, 
Uh, if, if you were left unconstrained, it would eventually take over the whole system. And death would be the result, eternal death. And God says, you know what? i got to stop sin. And that's going to be hard. People are going to experience that as, as the hard edge of justice. But it's restoring to, to right. And it's because of God's mercy that he does that. And he does it in his time. He knows when is the right time to do it. Uh, I wish we could know the right time, but we don't. Well, I would, we've had a very, very broad explanation to Tim's question. And to me, that all falls in with a very simple statement, and that is the fact that God makes these promises and is very honest with them. But every one of them is conditional. We have our part to fulfill, and we fail to do that. Satan is very subtle and very persistent, and we are easily led. And if we don't do the things that his promises want us to do, then the promises cannot be fulfilled because we have not fulfilled our part. Now, let me speak to that Uh, just a little bit. And there's always that remnant Mm -hmm. that... That does. Right. Or let comes me, close. Let me and it has the right heart. And then they uh, they come through. Right. Let's let's look at God's will for a second. God's will, we when we looked at God's will, and I was drawing some theology on the board back a while ago, um, we talked about God's uh, preceptive will. That which he or um, that which he declares is gonna happen, right? That that's the nature of reality. <coughs> Preceptive will isn't the right word. Uh, what's the right word, Mike? What am I thinking of here? He's our theologian in the class. Uh, it's where when God declares what is true about reality, and that's the way it is. There's no, there's no right or left in that. It's like, this is the way it's going to happen. He sees the picture. He knows. That's right. Well, he knows what reality is. Then there's God's permissive will. And that is what God allows. Now, he has the authority to direct things to go one way or another. But in his permissive will, he um, allows latitude within his, uh, within his boundary. In other words, you don't have unlimited choice. You can't choose anything that you want. If you decide that, uh, if God gives you a plate of cookies, and there's Mac nut cookies, and there's um, chocolate chip cookies, and oatmeal raisins. That must be your favorite. And you say, hey, I ordered a cheeseburger. It's not on the menu. right? But you have latitude within what kind of response you're going to give to God. Um, However, you have a limited choice. So it's not unlimited choice. You're not God um, in the sense that you can choose something that he's not allowing. So there is uh, God's will which he uh, preordains. And what is given in this statement is, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Period. You don't have to be part of his kingdom. But his kingdom is coming. So in that sense, he's given you permissive 
It's not his will that you would be outside of this kingdom, but guess what? There's no life outside of the one who is self-existent. So if you want to have eternal life, you need to be with him. You need to be in Christ to look at prepositions and how important they are. Right? This is all about being in Christ because in him is eternal life. And if you're joined with him in his kingdom, you have eternal life. That's how the promise is fulfilled. So the promise is there regardless of whether you respond to it or not. And it's, it, it's irrevocable in this sense. This is the way God ordained it. And whether you like it or not, or whatever you might think about God, really isn't, isn't on you know, the radar screen as far as God's concerned. I say it doesn't, doesn't, you know, he cares. That's not true. He does care. Because he repeatedly sends people to say, pay attention, listen, look around you. And what's interesting is, is that we have a very limited memory. I talked about seven-day memory, and I honestly believe that's true. I believe that in seven days, you can completely view the world differently than you did seven days before. Hey, mine's even shorter than that. It is shorter, but I think there's something, I do believe there is something about seven Yeah, I mean, for me, sometimes it's seven days, but what happens is, is that we have a very limited perspective. And Ethan even said that. He said, you know, what's a man? He's a breath. And it's appointed for all to die, right? And he knows that that's going to be the end in his era, is that he's going to die in captivity. That he doesn't have eternal life yet. But what he knows is that God's promise is sure. And that he knows that that future is going to happen whether he is there at that moment when that is unveiled in history or not. That ultimately God reigns. And that's what's being said in chapter 7. And what that looks like for eternity is given a preview in chapter 8. You know, it's, uh, you see an immediate fulfillment, and sometimes people use this, well, in prophecy there's an immediate fulfillment, a long-term vision. And I think that there is some of that in this, because you're going to see an immediate, you know, what's happening around David and the establishment of the nation, but you're also going to see a larger principle about how God fulfills his promise. An uh, eternal promise is given, and a preview of an eternal fulfillment is given. That's what chapter 8 is about for us. We're not about what's going on in Jordan in 1000 BC. We're about what's going on in the world today and what the ultimate end of history is. Right? That's what we want to look at as Christians. Is that... I, I open it up for more questions. <laughs> I do want to read through chapter 8. So, with that in mind, that context, let's look at chapter 8 in 2 Samuel. It says, now after this... I love that. Now after this, it came about that David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took control of the chief city from the hand of the Philistines. So what that means is, um, go to that map here. So the Philistines hung out down here. And you can actually see four, uh, four dots here. A dot here, a dot here, a dot here, a dot here, and a dot here. This area is uh, the pentapolis of the Philistines. That was the five cities of the Philistines. So which was the chief city? It was the chief cities. Which correct. one? No, uh, the, and took it, control of the chief city. Yeah, he actually took the whole coastal plain. Um, and let me zoom in and just show you a little bit about what that's about. So these cities are still there today, by the way. Uh, Karen and I went to them. And I'd encourage you all to join us when we go to Israel next. 
Which is when? When's that going to be? We'll talk more about that later. Gaza, which you hear about in the news a lot. Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Gath. These are the five cities. This is where Goliath is from. This is where the Philistines based their operations when they would attack Israel from. So definitely he took Gath and Ekron. And then he also took the whole coastal plain. So these, these were each like city-states. They had their own ruler. Yeah, they had their own king. Yep. Although they were a single nation, so they're, yeah, city-states is a good way of saying it. So um, he, he defeated the, the Philistines. And not only did he defeat them in a single battle, he basically won the war. That's what that says. David won the war against the Philistines. He defeated Moab and measured them with the line, making them lie down on the ground. And he measured two lines to put to death in uh, one full line to keep alive. And the Moabites became servants to David, uh, bringing tribute. So let me uh, back up just a little bit here. So I know that this will get a lot of people excited. What happened is, uh, here's Moab region. Actually, it extended up into here, even though that would be technically Ammon. David came in. Now, you remember where David was from? Where was his grandmother from? That's right. That's right. Ruth was from Moab. And yet David came in because these guys kept bugging him. Um, they, uh, David came in and conquered the nation. And then he lined them out on the ground, a big long line, and he took a, a measuring uh, tape, and he would measure out one group, and he'd take the same measuring tape, measure out another group, and those two groups he put to death. And he'd measure out a third group, and he'd keep them alive. Wow. Wow. Seems pretty harsh. Steel rod. We'll talk about that. Steel rod. He defeated Moab and measured them with the line. Then David defeated Hadadezer, the son of uh, Rehob, the king of Zobah, and he went to restore his rule at the river. David captured from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung the chariot horses, but reserved enough of them for 100 chariots. So these are the tanks of the day, right, the chariots. So he conquered the army, took all of their armament, and then disabled it. What he did, put sugar in their gas tank, except for 100 of them he kept for himself, right? Um, when the Arameans of Damascus came to help at a desert, the king of Zobah, uh, David killed 22,000 Arameans. Then David put garrisons among the Arameans of Damascus, and the Arameans became servants to David, bringing tribute. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. That's the key phrase there. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. So just to give you a little bit of geography here, because I always do that help you see the bigger picture. These are places where things are happening today in the world. So you got uh, Damascus up here in Aram. And so David went all the way from where he's at in Jerusalem, went all the way up in, into this part of the country. Syria, right? Yes, Syria. Syria, right? This is uh, Aram, not Iran, Aram. Oh. That was, uh, that was modern-day Syria. Was so, the Euphrates there too? Yes. Uh, the Euphrates is a little bit further over. So what you're seeing is that you're seeing David is getting security on all sides. 
wide scope. He's making sure that God's people are safe. Right? What's the role of the king? Provide, protect, and serve. Let me tell you, when he protects, he's a fierce protector. What, what river is that? Which? When they say the river. Yes. Yes. So what happened is wow, a little bit bigger picture. <laughs> okay. So and in fact, I can take it out a little bit further. You see the Euphrates and the Tigris uh, headed towards the Persian Gulf. So this area up here, Iraq, uh-huh. it was way out. Yeah. <laughs> now where did where did Abraham come from? Guess what David's securing? Abraham made a promise. The red brick wall in Babylon. So what you see here is that God is faithful. He says he's going to provide, protect, and serve. He's faithful. This is what God's doing. And it says, the Lord helped David wherever he went. David took the shields of gold which were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. From Bethah and from uh, Barathai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took a very large amount of bronze. Now when Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, Toy sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had been at war with Toy. In other words, your enemy is my enemy. Right? And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. King David also dedicated these to the Lord with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued, from Aram, from Aram and Moab, and the sons of Ammon, and the Philistines, and Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. So David made a name for himself when he returned from killing 18,000 Arabians in the Valley of Saul. He put garrisons in Edom, and all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became servants to David. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. This is what the Lord's doing. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. What's the king do? What's just and right? Joab the son of Zeruiah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the sons of Abiathar, were priests. And Zariah, I didn't pronounce it right, was secretary. Uh, Benaiah, I didn't pronounce that right, the son of Jehoiada, was over the uh, Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were chief ministers. So what you see or chief advisors. What you see happening is that when a government is established, the roles change from prophet, priest, and king to be more diverse in the way that there is service among God's people. And you see this revealed in the Bible. We're out of time. And I'll expand upon that next week. There are a lot of different administrative type roles that you see in God's government, both in heaven and on earth. And what you're going to see is that God actually establishes those same type of administration uh, governance on in, in both parts of His kingdom. So, and that's something that we need to understand because we're coming into a period of history for our country where you look around, and you say, "Where's God? Right? What's going on here?" 
and yet you see the remnants of God's promise as it's been fulfilled in history, both in social systems and in his presence. I mean, you see him uh, talked about, even though we don't, you know, it's like, where are you in this issue, God? Um, well, he put us here. So we're going to talk more about that next week. But I wanted to give you this picture of 6, 7, and 8 as a, as a theological basis that we're going to move forward on. Any questions before we end in prayer? I realize I covered a lot. It's like drinking from a fire hose, but it's what it is. Okay, we'll just go ahead and close. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for this time together. Um, your word is just so rich. What you've told us um, descriptively about who you are and what you're doing and the, the promises that you've made uh, and the great love that you have for us, Lord, is just... It's thrilling to, for lack of a better word, Lord, uh, just so grateful for who you are and what you're doing. Lord, please give us hope in this time of uh, great trial and darkness. We know that the world around us is really messed up. And uh, Lord, we would ask that your kingdom come and that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, um, please... Allow us to be a faithful part of that. Even if we would to, were to view ourselves as a remnant, help us to be a faithful remnant and not a, a whiny, complaining remnant. Uh, Lord, help us to be faithful to you and faithful to our brothers and sisters around us. Help us always to be serving and providing and protecting as you do, Lord, for us. Lord, we ask that you would be with Bob this morning in the, the service that as we go forward. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit speak powerfully through him to us. Lord, we uh, just ask for your protection upon us that we might uh, have opportunity to return here next week unless you come. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all of this. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen.